0: Welcome. If you are here for the first time or for the first time in a while, we're in week two of what is probably going to be a pretty long journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, We're going to pop in and out of it throughout the year, but I anticipate we'll be in 1 Corinthians for um, the better part of a year with plenty of good long breaks to go dive into some other passages as well. And uh, to get us where we're heading here today, let me just ask you, um, anybody? Have you ever gone and stayed at like what was you thought was a, a nice resort or vacation spot, and then at four in the morning, you left the windows open so you get that beautiful sea breeze, and you didn't read this in the reviews because you know you just looked at the pictures, but at four in the morning, the birds start twer- tweeting, right? And you, you stayed in the I've, I've been in some spots, not like that fancy, but some spots, you leave all the windows open, four in the morning, all of a sudden the birds start up, you know, chirp, 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 and, and it would be beautiful except for it's four in the morning. <laughs> I, I remember one place I went, and there were roosters, and they started crowing at about two in the morning, and I kid you not, me and my friend, we were on a missions trip on this one, we were up like... Trying to throw rocks. We were like trying to shoo them. They wouldn't go away no matter what we tried. Um, but anyway, so that beautiful sound of birds tweeting and just sort of singing and talking back and forth. Here's what you got to know about that sound. How many of you love that when you go places and there's birds in the forest and you can, you know, hear the whole thing? Um, so, so there's multiple things going on there. And one of those things, is this is actually the bird's way of jockeying for position of saying stay off my turf of saying this is my little section of the world and I may be little but by golly <laughs> this is my little park this is my branch this is my place and actually, what we're going to see in Corinthians is a church that was kind of doing that in a few different ways here. And so in just a minute, we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to talk about divisions, and we're going to see really two major themes that Paul begins to draw out. One of them is when it comes to divisions inside of followers of Jesus, inside of the community known as a church, um, what, do, what do we do with leaders as one of those? And then the other one is what do we do with wisdom and knowledge? And Paul's going to come back to these things and really drive his point home in a few different ways over the next few chapters. But as we go through today, I want to highlight a couple of words specifically. And these two words are this. Sophia. This is a Greek word. Sophia, which we know is wisdom. Sophia, wisdom. And the other one is logos, the word or knowledge. And let me just remind you, if you missed last week, what Paul did was he opens up this letter, is he's going to dive in and for the first about six chapters, he's going to confront some things that he's been hearing about that really concern him in the church in Corinthians. And and what we're going to see is it, it ties into how we think about culture, how we do life in the middle of a culture that's walking away from God. And he, we're going to see areas where they cozied up to culture in a way they shouldn't have. And he's going to say, come on, come back. You've been called to be set apart. You've been called to live your life differently. And so last week we saw he paints a big picture and reminds us of what the whole story is about. And it's about Jesus, that Jesus came, that Jesus called us, that Jesus saved us, that he set us apart for for something amazing in this world. We're part of a bigger purpose. We're part of a bigger plan. And it's all heading towards the time when when he will come again. And he's the one who's gonna be faithful to get us there. So the big picture, and one of the little phrases that we saw last week was this, he says, you've been enriched in all, and the word is logos in the Greek, in all logos. And so the Greeks, and in about 500 BC, there was a Greek philosopher, his name was Heraclitus, and he is often considered the inventor of Western metaphysics, I mean, he's this philosopher, and he really thought hard about things, and he came up, when it came to this term logos in Greek, he came up with this idea that the universe must be held together by some kind of logic or reason, which he defined as the logos, or the word, and and we, what he said is we, we can observe laws of physics, of mathematics, 2 plus 2 equals 4, I don't care what they teach you these days, but it's true, it does, Right? Two plus two equals four. There, there's laws. There's ways the universe was was created. And, and there must be a cause behind this. And what's really cool is when... I want to put this one scripture up here that talks about logos before we dive into Corinthians here today. Because John, the one of the disciples that was the closest to Jesus as he's writing his account of the life of Jesus. Here's what he says when it comes to logos, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to that thing that held the universe together. He says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And so John, as he starts his account of the life of Jesus, he says, yes, you're right. There is a logos. There is a logic. There is a rationale. There is something that holds the universe together. But it's not a force. It's not uh, some you know mysterious force or some impersonal thing. No, the word is personal. And the word was what? It was with God, so distinct from God. And yet the word was was God. And so right away at the beginning of John's letter, we we discovered that the Word, who we discover a little while later, has a name. And I think you're in church, you probably know his name, right? There you go. If I ever ask a question, you can usually just answer with Jesus and it probably will work. Uh, It's always a good answer. So Jesus, the Word, we find out his name just a little while later. The Word is God. He's preexistent. He existed before anything created that exists. He was coexistent with the Father, and we'll find out a little later in John, uh, with the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, self-existent, the three-in-one. So right at the beginning of John, you have the, the foundational doctrine of the Trinity, the three-in-one, that God is three persons in one. And that blows our mind, right? As it should, because he's the infinite God but he's personal. We know his name. He has a name, and you can know, you can have a personal relationship with the eternal God, the creator of the universe. That's the heart and the message of what we know about the word, the logos, right? And so Paul comes around in Corinthians, and he says, you've been enriched with all knowledge, all logos. And he ties this in, and now we're going to see this word come up several times as we go through this. And then we're going to see wisdom and how these things tie together and how it can help us as we walk through a culture that thinks actually in many ways very similarly to the Greek culture. And then also as we have interactions with each other. And so in 1 Corinthians 1.10, now that Paul set the stage with this incredible reminder of the big picture we're all part of. Now he's going to get to some of the meat of the letter of what he sees and what he wants to see confronted in this church. And here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So we catch, right right away, we, we discover that there's divisions in this church. We'll see why, and we'll see how some of that works itself out here as we get to the next verse. But as you see this idea of unity, all of a sudden, it's like, well, what is Paul talking about? What does unity mean? What's the heart of being united, being perfect, as he says, being perfectly united in mind and thought? Does this mean that truth doesn't matter Um, what you believe doesn't matter. We should all just circle up. We can sing. Anybody remember Kumbaya? Kumbaya. It's this old, old, old song. We can all just kind of hug it out, high five, go home, do whatever we want. It doesn't matter as long as, you know, we think think and say the same things. Is that the heart of unity? No. Unity doesn't mean that we just all get together in a circle and hug it out and kind of that's the way it goes here's here's what unity means unity doesn't mean that we come together as a fellowship of of believers and say hey you have your truth I have my truth it doesn't really matter as long as you believe it as long as you're sincere all roads lead to the same place now just think about that because rationally that can't be true can it And so this isn't the, 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 see, this is where a lot of people go when it comes to this passage and and how this passage ends up getting twisted is because in an effort um, to sort of come together around things that are important in an effort to honor this, so oftentimes this is used as an excuse to just sort of throw truth out the window because all that really matters is that we we love each other. And is love important? Yes. Jesus says what? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. But at the heart of love is pursuing who? The word. Is pursuing that which holds the universe together. Is pursuing a relationship with God. In fact, that's why, in if you want to go understand unity a little bit more, go read John chapter 17. And as Jesus prays for us, actually, his followers to have unity, it's to have unity in him, actually in him who is the truth. In fact, this is what he says in John 17, 17. Sanctify them or set them apart through your truth. The, the word, your word is truth, he says. And who's the word? Well, we learned that at the beginning of the book of John, didn't we? It's Jesus. So it's found in him. That's the truth is we fight to really know Jesus. We work to really know Jesus because Jesus is the essential thing that binds us together. The word of God, what Jesus says is true, who Jesus is, the written word of God expressed, that is where truth is found. That is where we're set apart as we get to know that, as we pursue that. That is where we find common ground. Now, in the midst of that, it is very important, and here's what often happens in churches, is churches split and divide over kind of silly things. I mean, I think there's well over a thousand uh, different Protestant denominations. (laughs) And most of them, they're not over real major issues, right? A lot of them are over some pretty minor issues. Now, here, here uh, what, what, if you want to understand unity in the heart of, I think, what Paul is getting at is this, that w- when it comes to pursuing truth, pursuing the word who is truth, when it comes to having unity of mind, it means we have unity on the essentials and liberty on the non-essentials. In fact, we have a phrase around here, it's, it, it, we're lifelong learners. Here's what that means that we have, even on our staff, some differing opinions about some things. But we're united when it comes to the truth of who God is, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the incarnation, that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus. When it comes to the gospel, that you cannot save yourself, that you need a savior, and salvation is only found in him. By grace, it's a free gift. You don't do anything to earn it. You just trust him through faith, right? So you don't have anything to boast about. The heart of the gospel, that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. You go back and look at the Apostles' Creed. It's really a fundamental statement of who Jesus is. The fact that he lived, he died for us, and he's coming again. He rose again, and he's coming again. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. Real core essentials. But what lifelong learners means is we don't think, when it comes to a lot of other things, we don't think we have it all figured out yet. That when it comes to some things, like, you know, things, um, we say smarter people than us have been disagreeing about these things for thousands of years. And it's true. <laughs> I go and read some of these scholars, I'm like, man, they're pretty smart. They, that's a pretty good point. And then I I go read another one. I'm like, they're pretty smart too. And so here's what that means. When it comes to things that aren't super, super clear in scripture, man, we can love each other. We can fellowship together. We can even be staff on staff together, not agree on every single particular things like, I mean, we believe Jesus is coming back exactly how that happens and all the specific details. Um, I don't exactly have it all dialed in yet. I've got some opinions. I'll I'll share those with you as we go along. But you might not agree with me. But we can link arms in saying that Jesus is coming again to bring his kingdom, that he is coming again. And when he does, we will spend eternity with him. We can link arms on that, right? That truth is found in him. And one thing I know is is you look at a culture that by and large is walking away from God, is walking away from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Man, I, I think we need to come together more than ever and have unity on the essentials and have some liberty on things that aren't always like that important, right? Well, some of them are but it's not that they're not important. It's great to study hard to have your opinion. To to try to, you know, know when it comes to, let's say, in times or even like wrestle, grapple with issues like Calvinism and Arminianism and all these things. Who chooses? God chooses. We choose. How does that all work together? Again, I want to remind you, you're not an infinite God. You probably won't be able to fully comprehend the, uh, the workings of an infinite God. I have my opinions. I'll share those with you at some point, too. When it comes to those things like translations of the Bible... We're going to, we, we might not always agree exactly, but you know what we agree on is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. We're going to pursue him that he's coming again, that we find salvation in him. And one of the things I say around that is if you haven't changed any opinions lately, you probably haven't been learning much. Because one thing I've noticed is the more I grow and the more I learn, the more I realize I I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm constantly learning, right? And so unity on the essentials. And there's some other areas we can disagree a little bit. How often do we do communion? What about a lot of other issues? Well, guess what? Really smart people who love Jesus with all their hearts and have a commitment to the authority of Scripture. I would say that's another non-essential, that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God. It's our final authority in faith and practice, not what some guy's opinion on it is. But here's, here's, here's the, uh, the thing to be careful of. In, in a church like ours that's biblically serious, we have a value biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit, oftentimes it's easy to begin to feel this subtle sense of superiority because we take the Bible real serious. Then we look at some others over here, followers of Jesus, and kind of begin to look down on them and judge them in our hearts. We got to be careful of that. In fact, here's what Paul goes on, and he says this, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you, What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, another, still another, I follow Christ. Now, we don't know who Chloe is, other than that's a woman's name often used um, among the well-to-do, this time in Greek culture. But apparently, whoever she was, um, her or people from her household came, they brought a report to Paul about some of the crazy stuff that we're going to learn about in the next six chapters that are going on in certain areas of this church. And to understand sort of the factions, remember we started talking about the birds tweeting. This is my territory. This is how I feel important. This is how I feel spe- like. Don't get in my space. It's kind of this is what's going on in Corinth. And in uh, since 44 BC, when Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth, he rebuilt it as a cor- uh, as a Roman colony. And you got to understand. I'm gonna blaze through a little bit of history. Real quick, just so you understand sort of why some of this stuff is such a big deal and how they're getting this from the culture. And Paul's going to say, careful, the culture is going to lead you down the wrong path here. So Julius Caesar rebuilds Corinth and they prided themselves on being a Roman city on Greek soil. And so I'll show you a couple pictures really quick. Showed them last week, but for those that maybe you're joining us for the first time, you had all kinds of stuff going on. You had the, these are the ruins of ancient Corinth. I got to go there when I was 13 and uh, remember it. It was really an amazing experience. But you had the Bima, or the Roman seat of power, that was this incredible. Um, area where, you know, the Roman governor was. We saw that in Acts chapter 18, where they drug Paul in front of this Roman governor. You had this incredible stadium that housed 18,000 people, second only to the Olympic Games. Um, This was a huge deal, cultural deal. You had incredible temples, multiple temples, including this, the temple of Apollo, the temple also of Aphrodite, where they worshipped all these pagan gods. So there was a, a religious culture, distinctly not Christian. And then they had the theater in ancient Corinth that would, that would uh, hold 3,000 people. And you've heard the saying, the whole town turned out for something. Have you ever heard that saying? So for us, it'd probably be the whole town turned out for country jam. Doesn't mean everybody in town went, but it means everybody's talking about it. Everybody's, you know, familiar with it. Everybody's talking about the drama. Exactly, right? When country jam rolls around, like we're kind of talking about it in Grand Junction, Colorado. And at this point, the whole town turns out and they would have these visiting intellectuals, these philosophers. They'd talk about theory and practice and wisdom and the logos, the thing that made the universe work. And they called these people the sophists. Remember our first word, the Sophia, right? Wisdom. For us, we have Country Jam, they have philosophers, the sophists. Also, do you notice the root word of sophist would probably be what? Sophisticated. So here's where we get sort of this idea of someone who's very intellectual, someone who's very sophisticated in argument. Oftentimes they would be really well-spoken. They would be the guys that could get up and like, it didn't really matter what they were saying, but by the time they were done, you're like, yeah, right? This is the, these are the guys. And one of the reasons why when you hear the word sophist or sophist, sophistry, um, even you may have a negative perception of it today, is because of what Paul's about to write, confronting this perspective. So but these sophists, they would travel around and actually make disciples or learners or followers for themselves. And these disciples often quarreled and sort of scrapped among themselves about which one of their teachers was the greatest. This was the pagan culture that elevated human wisdom, logos, knowledge, above everything. Logos, also the root of what? Logic. I can figure this out. I can dial this in. I can wrap my mind around how the universe works. And they exalted this sort of wisdom. And you begin to see this in the church now, where it says, hey, some of them are like, hey, I follow Paul. Yeah, Paul was the first one here. He led people to Jesus. I follow Paul. Almost others were like, I follow Apollos. He was a wonderful speaker. He was very learned in scripture. He was able to explain it powerfully. And some of them were like, I like his skinny jeans. He's got the sneaker. We have a joke around here um, that uh, there's this, I don't know, it's a website or Instagram page or something, uh, Preachers and Sneakers. And my staff keeps telling me I need to up my game if I ever want to get on that. And so one of these days, maybe I'll have some gold sneakers. I doubt it. I doubt it. I'm more the Ross dressed for less kind of guy when it comes to my sneakers. (laughs) So you got Apollos, and then you had Cephas, which is Peter, except for this is sort of the nickname, uh, The Rock, And they're like, yeah, I follow Peter. He came, he rolled through here after Paul and Apollos. And man, he was amazing. In fact, man, he was so close to Jesus. He's one of Jesus' favorites. I'm on team Peter. And two major, oh, and then you got this other group. I just follow Jesus. I'll just follow Jesus. And here's what that is, I think, as I read this. Because it feels really spiritual and intellectual, doesn't it? There's two major errors. The first is idolizing leaders, having a tribal mindset, sort of the celebrity pastor. The other one is ignoring leadership, getting out of community. And here's what I think is going on with this last group. It's like, we just follow Christ. They don't have any authority in my life. I don't need the community of the church. I just go out in nature and worship God. You got my little, like, group. We, we meet, but I don't need to be part of the bigger thing that God's doing. We either idolize leaders or we tend to, like, just push them off to the side. And Paul's not saying leadership isn't important. No, in fact, we see throughout Scripture, as Jesus commissions apostles and leaders, it's very important. But leaders were never meant to be worshipped. Leaders cannot, <laughs> if you've followed news headlines, it seems like every other week, some news. Mega church pastors having some scandal is falling, right? And there's this constant thing in the heart of people that, that so oftentimes, like as a thing gets huge and you got all these people saying, man, you're doing so great and all this different things. It's very hard to keep it about Jesus. It's very hard for it not to go to your head. Leaders were never meant to be idolized. One pastor um, said it this way. He says, those who you idolize, one day you will demonize. And here's the point is, when a leader becomes an idol to a congregation, to a group of people, um, they oftentimes fall. Because the human heart was never meant to receive worship. Worship goes to God. And leaders aren't always right. I love it. This is why Paul, like when he goes, the next place he goes after um, Corinth, we see what actually was to the Bereans. And they get praised. You know why why he praises them? Because they didn't just take his word for it. They went back to scripture themselves. Which is why you need to be in your word, which is why we encourage you. Read your Bible. Do the Bible challenge. Be in a replicate group where you're really digging into scripture. Do one of these things because you need to know the whole counsel of God so that you know when I don't get it right. You can go, yeah, I don't think so. Then you can send me emails. Just make them nice. When you talk, you know, for every week, you're bound to say some dumb things, okay? I know that. And you guys are very kind, and I appreciate that, because there's plenty of weeks I walk off here, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what was that? (laughs) And and a lot of you are like, oh, that was wonderful. I'm like, thanks. You're very kind. But here's what I know. Unless God is doing something here, it's all for nothing. See, that's what Paul's going to get to. He goes on. So Paul's like, stop it. (laughs) Here's how he goes on. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Oh, and then he stops. He's like, oh, wait, no. He's like, yes, I also baptized baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I love this. It makes me feel better when I forget names, right? He's like, I can't even remember. I baptized a bunch of you, but I don't even know. (laughs) But here's the point. He's saying, Christ, is Messiah split up? No. Remember, it's all about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. He mentions Jesus over and over and over again in this chapter. The rest of us, including the leaders, man, we are just also members in the body of Christ. This global thing called the church that he's building, that he said the gates of hell won't prevail against. And he says, Bap- like, I didn't, now he's not putting baptism down. In fact, baptism's a really big deal for Paul and for the early church. It's the, the formal outward sign before God and your family and, and your community that a person is leaving behind, so to speak, the old identity and entering into a new identity as a person of God, as a person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So it was a really, really big deal. In fact, in the New Testament, there really wasn't a a paradigm for a not-baptized Christian. You just did it. It was the sign. And and in fact, what's interesting is it's really safe here in the West. Like, you know, you, you don't... Nobody feels threatened getting baptized. You might feel a little awkward, you know, being in front of people, but you don't feel threatened. There's parts of the world, even today where you can get, you get baptized and it could cost you your life. And this is what they're dealing with. It was a really big deal. It was a big deal. It, it, what is a symbol, but it's much more than just a symbol. Like a ring is a symbol, but it represents something much deeper and bigger than that, doesn't it? That you belong to someone else. And this is the point. that that Paul is making, he's saying, guess what? As important as this was, I'm really glad that I didn't baptize you. Why? Because the big deal is not who baptized you into Jesus. It's the fact that you were baptized into Jesus, that you're part of his family. That's why I love here at Life Community, we have like parents baptizing kids. We have, uh, I loved it. I can't remember if it was this year or the year before, kids baptizing their parents. Because dad came to Jesus. It's amazing. It doesn't matter who baptizes you. The point is, you follow Jesus. You become part of the thing he's doing. And I love it also that he he remembers this, that he baptized the whole household of Stephanus, Because this just continues to illustrate the importance for parents. And we try to highlight this whenever we can in, in the scripture. Of discipling your kids. That this is a household, it's not just your faith your isn't just your private thing for just you. It's meant to be something that's poured into your kids and your grandkids. Parents, you have the most influence in the, the lives of your kids of anyone. Their peers are next. Grandparents, you're right up there, too. On 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 the the uh, the role you have in influencing them. And that's why Deuteronomy says, hey. Have these conversations when you rise up, when you sit down on the way to the park, on the way to the soccer field. Make them a part of your life. Teach your kids scripture. Memorize scripture with them. That's one of the things that my mom made me do that I'm most thankful for now. She made me memorize scripture when I was a kid. And you know what? I use that almost every week as God brings something to my mind that that God planted in my heart years ago when I was a kid. You don't have to, as a parent, you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, I don't know, but you need to go know where to go look for the answers to the hard questions of life. There's a guy named William Lane, Lane Craig, he was, uh, he's really written a lot on helping move kids towards Jesus and, and prepare for um, what they're going to face in a secular society. Here's what he says. If parents are not intellectually engaged with their faith and do not have sound arguments for Christian theism and good answers to their children's questions, then we are in real danger of losing our youth. It is no longer enough to simply teach our children Bible stories. They need doctrine and apologetics. They need to know that there's good answers. You don't have to have them. You just need to go know where to go look for them. That's what the church does. We come alongside you. But it's your responsibility to take the initiative to disciple your kids, to pour into your kids, to have conversations about Jesus. And I love the fact that we have so many kids in our church. Here's what I want to see. I want to see them grow up and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. And that happens most effectively when parents are engaged in the lives of their kids. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. In other words, baptism wasn't like my primary personal calling. He's not, also, he's not saying don't get baptized or it's not important, right? He's just saying the who isn't important. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, my life's about the gospel. That's the call God gave me to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Not with wisdom and eloquence. there's are two words. Not with Sophia and Logos. Not with the world's wisdom, eloquent, flowery speech. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I didn't come with all this flowery speech. But this is kind of funny. So he, he goes on, and, and it's almost like, because the next few verses, the next rest of the chapter really, is some of the most beautiful Greek, most eloquent, so it's almost like he's teasing them. Because we remember, we we said last week that scholars think that even if Paul hadn't written half the New Testament, you would know his name because he was that brilliant. And so it's like, almost for a minute, he's going to turn it on. And so there's a lot in, you don't get the sense in the English, but in the Greek, you get this like poetic sense of like this incredible rhetoric, almost like he's teasing them with it because of what he's going to say here next. Here's what he says. He's like, Hey, just so you know, I can throw down. I'm going to throw down a little right now. Okay. So he goes this for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So there's this big thought, like the Logos, again, the Logos, the message, the word of the cross. It Guess what? He says it's folly. It's foolishness. This is the Greek word, literally the root word for moronic, And here's what this means. If you follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't understand Jesus, that sometimes people are going to think you are a moron. Paul says, this is how this comes across. There's two different paths when it comes to wisdom. There's the way of the world, and there's the wisdom of God. The logos of the cross. And and guess what? It's true. The atheists, they think you're an idiot because there isn't a God. How could that even make sense, right? Hindus are like, there's hundreds of millions of God. How can the gospel that God came in the flesh and died? How does that even make sense? Judaism looks at uh, Jesus as a failed Messiah. Messiah doesn't get crucified on a cross. Islam says he didn't really die, he just sort of fainted on the cross. See, the message of the cross, the resurrection, that God would come in the flesh, the incarnation, that he would live, that he would die for the sins of the world. Three days be in the grave, he would rise again. And then he, the message goes out, the good news of the gospel, that this risen Lord is the Lord of everything, and you should, whatever it costs, give up your life to follow him. And the culture says, idiot. Why would you do that? And Paul's like, yeah. He says, this is the gospel I preach. Not with some sort of elegant words. But here's what he says. There's two kinds of people in the world. People trusting their own wisdom and effort to save themselves, and those who trust in what Jesus did on the cross and are being saved through him. People who are perishing apart from him, who think the message of the cross is foolishness, and people who are being saved because they've submitted their life to the foolishness of the cross. C.S. Lewis, um, as he was talking about reason and logic and the fact that, you know, he was an atheist, actually. He didn't believe in a God. And yet he understood that in my own effort, I'm trying to argue logically that there is not a God. And yet that doesn't make sense. Check out what he says. Supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind, in that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. Now, if you don't believe in the spirit, in a consciousness that makes you who you are, that's more than just your physical body, he's right. He goes on, so, but, but if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that it spl- the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism, and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. See, at the heart of it is those that argue against the foolishness of the cross argue from a standpoint of trying to take human wisdom and wrap your mind around something that isn't human, that isn't physical, that's by definition other than. You can't answer metaphysical questions with physical rational logic that defines everything only in the physical realm of what is. See, and Paul understands there's people that are going to try to approach the gospel and their relationship with God on an intellectual level only. Now, here's what you need to know. When it comes to faith, The Christian faith, I think, has the greatest rational, intellectual basis of any way of thinking of the world. It works. It explains the universe best. It explains humanity and the fallen nature of humanity. It explains that thing in me that knows there's something more and yet so often can't grasp it or wrap my arms around it. It explains that longing in my heart, that Knowledge that something's broken in the human heart and in the human experience. But you can't understand it all simply rationally. See, Paul goes on. He says this. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? They're all over the podcasts, aren't they? And see, that's where so many go. But there's going to be a day, Paul says, when the podcasts stop, when the new atheists aren't atheists any longer because they're going to stand face-to-face with their Savior. When the new age will realize it wasn't just about the universe, it's about the person of Jesus Christ risen and returning to judge the future, to judge the world. Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, and this is so deep, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Then in God's big plan, in the midst of this pagan city, super proud of its intellectual culture, Jesus Christ, crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross, Has actually risen from the dead and is the Lord of everything. (laughs) It's a crazy message. And Paul's like, yep, but it's true. It's true. And it should change everything. Uh, One scholar says this NT Wright, this was and is the craziest message anybody could imagine. That wasn't a smart new philosophy, it was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was the news of an executed criminal from a despised race. This is what Paul's saying. He goes on, verse 22. Jews demanded signs, and the Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. For the Jews, he says, it's a scandal. That's the root word in the Greek, a scandal. Something that trips someone up. Jews always wanted a dramatic sign. Jesus says, nope, you're going to get one sign. What was that? Sign of Jonah. Three days, he's going to be in the grave, and he's going to rise again. The Greeks, they were all about sophisticated philosophy, and they just found this whole notion foolish. Suffering God, a criminal Messiah. The way to God, not based on a rational approach to the logos, the universe. Paul says, no, it's about a man. The logos, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And to all who received him, he, came, he gave the right to become children of God. See, it may be a message of foolishness to the wisdom of the world, but it's the most beautiful message in history. That you can have a relationship with God. That you can know him. That you can embrace him, and Paul says, "I didn't come with eloquence, so I just showed you I can throw down a little bit when I need to." But when I first came and preached, man, I just laid out the gospel. I don't know if you ever remember hearing Billy Graham uh, preach. I got to go to one of his uh, big, huge meetings when I was just a little kid. I remember; I still remember it. Thousands and thousands of people. He had like four sermons. He just, but man, and they weren't flashy, but they had the power of God. See, and Paul recognizes something. There's people who the Spirit of God is drawing. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Christ crucified. This is the message. And as the Spirit of God draws people, he enables them to trust this incredible message. End it. In it to find life and hope. Would you stand? If Winston's in the room. I'm. I'm gonna invite you to come up. Um, just play a little bit as we close. Here's what. Here's how I want to close. In a room this big, I know there's some of you that have not trusted in Jesus yet. That you've been trying to work this whole thing out on your own. I want to give you an invitation to respond. The message of the cross is simple, that God became flesh in the person and the Son of God, the person of Jesus, that he lived and he died for you and he rose again. And that you can have eternal life by embracing and trusting in him and what he did for you on the cross, and he's coming back again, and you will get to spend eternity with him, an eternity beyond anything you can imagine. And perhaps for some, you feel the Spirit of God like drawing you like, yes, there's something in me that says I believe it. Why don't you just pray a prayer like this after me? And let me just say, for all of you, I know the majority of you, you've prayed this prayer. Many years ago, many of you. Would you ask him if you've lost the wonder and the joy as we pray this? Would you just say, Thank you, Jesus? Ask him, like the psalmist asked, to restore the joy of your salvation if you feel dry inside. Because life isn't found in one more podcast. Good tips. It's found in the source of all life. Let's pray. That person in the room, you feel God drawing you right now. Why don't you pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe in you that you are who you said you are, that you died and rose again. Save me. Give me your life. I want to turn from my old life and follow you with everything in me. In Jesus' name. And Lord, thank you for my other friends. Bless them today. Let us all be in awe and wonder of this simple message, foolishness to the world, but life to those of us being saved.